On this episode of Radio Survivor, Paul nerds out with the editor and founder of Tedium.co over their mutual fascination with backdoor Franken-FM stations. Those are the TV broadcasters who use analog channel 6 to be heard at 87.7 FM. It essentially existed sort of as this cosmic accident. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Eric Klein, host and producer of this program, as we say every week. And Paul Reese Mandel put together this entire episode, but he is not uh, physically here with me now. I should tell you that at this point in August of 2016, we're going to have a lot of... Uh, uh, we're shifting up the format of the podcast a little bit because uh, uh, because of vacations. Everyone's, everyone's leaving town. Of course, Jennifer Waits with College Radio Watch will be back along shortly every time jennifer is up in the air you can bet that she is gathering to her more more on the ground reporting about uh college radio stations because she can't help herself she's touring them even as she travels for other other purposes so um that's all going to be coming up in the weeks to come including uh next week on the program there's going to be uh matthew lasar is going to join us on the program he and i are going to talk about uh community radio in Africa and how that compares uh, to the United States. And he has a specific case in mind that he is interested in. So that's what's coming up on the program uh, next week. On this show, though, Paul Reese mendel host, producer of Radio Survivor, sat down and spoke with uh, Ernie Smith, who is the founder of Tedium.co. Ernie calls himself the editor of Tedium.co. I'm going to call him the founder. It's his website where he writes fascinating things um i mean paul reached out to ernie smith because ernie had written this article uh that had gone around the internet about uh, something that paul has been really excited about uh these franken fm stations and that's that's how they begin their conversation here on radio survivor but then the conversation shifts to uh, philosophy regarding writing on the internet uh paul put it this way because ernie's website is called tedium.co and it's called that for a reason. He focuses on things very intentionally that that other websites these days would never touch because um, they're intentionally uh, uh, focusing down on the minutia uh, of of fascinating ideas uh, that that really don't matter that much. So there's no there's no clickbait to them. In our clickbait times, the not aspiring to or pushing to it being the most astounding or when I saw it, my jaw dropped or, or whatever to instead actually put things in proportion feels a little different <laughs> for these times, even if it, it's an utterly reasonable thing to do. And of course, uh, another thing that I really enjoyed about this conversation that Paul recorded is that um, why, why do the work at all? Why write on the internet and, uh, Ernie Smith breaks it down uh, really nicely. I'm ultimately doing this because I see this as as a really good creative exercise. That's something that I can that I can really you know that that I can really build from. A creative exercise uh, in this case for Ernie writing on the internet. Of course, for me it resonates uh, because I podcast. Um, so yeah, let's jump right into Paul Reese Mandel's interview with Ernie Smith. Welcoming. Ernie Smith, he's the editor of Tedium.com, which uh, he calls, amongst many taglines, it's where he's looking for the ending of the long tail. Welcome, Ernie. Thanks for joining me. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. So 
I want to talk with you for a few reasons. I actually found your website, tdm.co, uh, about two months ago, I want to say. Uh, so somewhere probably in uh, May of 2016. And I can't tell you what led me there, but I spent a very late night just <laughs> digging deeper and deeper into your stories. So I got hooked on on one story called A Banner Decade, in which you tell the story of this software called Print Shop, which 1980s computer users would use on their dot matrix printers to to make banners, uh, you know, to print out big, like, happy birthday banners. Anyone who might have been alive then might have seen one of these banners at a birthday party or maybe at an office party or something. I was also way into an article you wrote called The Other Windows, which was about this sort of alternative operating system. Uh, I think it's called Geos, which would operate on, like, Commodore 64s, but then got embedded in all these systems, and you dug into that history. Uh, and, and I just went on and on all night because you pick these stories and you, you call it the, the, the end of the long tail, but you pick these stories that are, they're sort of fringe, but only maybe fringe, not, not entirely like, like the print shop was not fringe in 1985, but it is sort of now. Uh, but on sort of like for, for a nerd like myself, it's just complete catnip, but you, <laughs> you approach it with storytelling. Right. So it's not just facts and figures. You really try to tell a story. And and why I'm talking to you on the Radio Survivor podcast is because uh, I, so I spent that long night and I came back a couple times and then it came back on my radar because you wrote about Franken FMs, which are a particular type of radio station. And w- would you mind picking it up there and, t- and, and, and telling our listeners what is a Franken FM station? So basically, a Franken FM. Um, it's it's sort of a long, you know, sort of the short way to say it is that it's essentially channel six, like on an analog TV. Um, basically, um, the way that the the wireless spectrum was set up in the '40s and '50s, it's sort of a part of the wireless spectrum that just happens to be right next to the standard FM radio dial. It, it basically is literally sitting right next to it it uh in terms of in terms of the radio dial and as a result it's so close that you can actually pick it up on like a car stereo like you know essentially a very powerful stereo that happens to be set up in a way that is just right at the end where you can actually tune in to uh i think it's 87.7 and uh as a result, it's it can't be picked up in every radio, but it somehow it somehow works that way. And so, what you're saying is that people can hear the audio from a TV channel on their radio. Yeah, um, the way that I sort of like uh, segued into it, and in my piece was that I pointed out that the indie rock band uh, TV on the radio. This is literally what they're named for, um, <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, during the you know fifties through about two thousand eight or two thousand nine, it essentially existed sort of as this cosmic accident. It basically was something that allowed allowed the radio to pick up you know an episode of Jeopardy or you know as I think that uh, I I best enjoyed it when I was uh, eight or nine years old. Uh, 
an easy way to uh, easy way to listen to the Muppet Babies when uh, I was not uh, anywhere near a TV. Right, and and what happened in two thousand and nine? Then what what changed it from being kind of this uh, this cosmic accident, as you put it, to being sort of a radio service? Um, essentially, the digital TV switchover. You know, all the FCC rules, they just kind of they just kind of threw everything for a loop. And um, the FCC's like best laid plans were essentially we're going to get these high-powered TV stations to switch from the analog dial to the digital dial, which takes up a little bit less a uh, little bit less spectrum space, and also kind of allows us to give that bandwidth to other to other parties, uh, specifically like mobile phone companies, and. It was supposed to work that way, but there were some exceptions to the rule. Um, one of the big ones was that they still let low-power television stations uh, work on the, the analog the analog signals for a number of years, and uh, and some enterprising entrepreneurs saw this as a way to take advantage of Channel Six's pretty pristine, high-quality audio signal. And use that to essentially turn it into a radio station, you know, sort of a backdoor radio station in a lot of ways. Um, you know, they have to still like keep a video signal on on the analog TV. So if you have an analog TV sitting somewhere and you're in a market with a channel six, you'll hear the radio, but ten to one, it'll probably be like some sort of you know solid, you know, like just standing screen. Like there won't actually be any real video that goes with it. It's basically a way to get around regulations. So how did you stumble upon this? How did this come onto your radar now? Um, one of the things that I found really interesting and part of the reason why I really wanted to kind of look into this a little bit was um, the creation of MeTV FM and the fact that it was kind of doing good in the ratings. Uh, in the Chicago area, I I saw I saw something about that online. I was just like, "Hey, this is actually kind of a <laughs> unusual end case, you know." And I'm all about the edge cases. <laughs> right, right. Me TV uh, radio, which which is sort of a funny name, is something that that I learned about as well. And in fact, uh, Radio Survivor. We get press releases from them now <laughs> because because we've written about them in the past. And I used to actually live in Chicago, but I moved away uh, just a little bit before MeTV Radio went on the air. But MeTV, I guess, is something a lot of people might be aware of uh, because it's one of these digital subchannels, right? And it's like mostly kind of nostalgia programming like what used to be on tv land like it'll be mr ed and uh, hogan's heroes and columbo you know it's all reruns but sort of packaged with some really good like nostalgia underpinnings and like the radio station which they now operate is a similar kind of kind of format right have you actually had a chance to hear it because i've not heard it i just know about it i've i mean like i'm in the dc area so i haven't exactly he had the chance to pick up the signal. It doesn't. It doesn't go that far. No. I, but but I, I have uh, you know I have like heard it through other means uh, via YouTube. Uh, somebody somebody recorded a video of themselves traveling to work while listening to the radio station, which people do all the time. Obviously, right, right. <laughs> but but it was kind of a it was kind of a great little. Uh, 
thing to watch because you know the guy who was the guy who was doing it he was clearly excited about about what he was listening to John Denver I grew up by John Denver this is probably perhaps one of my favorite songs partly because uh, one of the interesting things about me TVFM is that while like on a standard on a standard level it's an oldie station it has a broader pool than most oldie stations pull from so like they might they might pull something from the 70s that no standard mainline oldie station would actually touch mm-hmm. um in, in a lot of ways it's sort of like um it, it's sort of like a jack fm kind of station except it only focuses on oldies which you know it's pretty pretty cool and as a result like even though not a lot of like radios can actually pick the station up, you know, like many can, but there's still plenty. Like if you were like, try to pull it up on like a, a clock radio, you might not be able to do it. Uh, it actually has done well, well enough in the ratings that I guess back in, back in March or so it had the highest ratings ever picked up for a Franken FM. Yeah. For a station, right. Which isn't actually an FM station. You know, I think the way I, I often think about uh, me TV radio is how is that if you were to open up like Billboard magazine, like the end of the year for like 1975 and look at whatever the, the chart was for that year. Right. So like maybe the top 100 singles for the entire year, only some like small uh, selection of them would actually still be in rotation like today, even if they were like kind of big hits in 1975. Uh, the, you wouldn't hear them anymore on most commercial radio, and 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 it wouldn't necessarily be like only the number like one through ten would be heard. Actually, the selection process is sort of idiosyncratic, right? Something that might have been number three in nineteen seventy five might be sort of forgotten, and I think a lot of people who then hear it on like MeTV radio, their their uh, reaction is like, "Oh my gosh, I, I remember this song, and I haven't heard it in forever." And I think that's sort of the key to kind of its. Uh, it's success. It seems like, yeah, and I think that's kind of a kind of a brilliant model. And uh, one of the things that's kind of been said about this, and I think it's also been said a little bit about some of the for- other formats that have been tried on that particular station, uh, the eighty-seven point seven in Chicago, is that they they seem like they're attempting to respond or react to the the age of the Pandora Radio or or Spotify, where you know obviously a radio cannot let you pick any song that you want to listen to at any given moment, but you can actually broaden out a little bit of of what's playing and and as a result, like it has a little bit more of the cadence of like a you know a Pandora station that just happens to like be on a really on a really good well you know the algorithm is is working really well on this particular station right it's sort of like you know i I, you have the experience you hear songs that you know and you like and then every so often you get a curveball and maybe you don't know it but you like it you you know it's it it matches enough the 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 sound of everything else you're listening to that you'll be like oh what was that or or it it picks out a song that 
you did like at some point and you'd completely forgotten about it. Maybe you'd only heard once or twice ever in the past and it kind of bubbles it up back into your consciousness. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that that's kind of a, kind of a brilliant strategy, especially because it, it sort of gets past the homogenization that commercial radio has often been accused of. I think that, yeah, I think it's one of those things where, um, Sort of the placement of the station almost gives almost gives uh, I think it's uh, Weigel Broadcasting yeah. um, that that owns that. Um, it kind of gives them a little bit of free reign over over how they handle it. Maybe a little bit more than like a uh, iHeart Radio station that you know has been has been sort of like the the key rock radio or pop radio station in that market for the last, for the last 15 years. It's, it's a little bit harder to, you know, to mess with the format when, when you have something that's working or it's hard to, it's hard to mess with, it's hard to go with the format that hasn't already shown success in other markets. If you have like this mainline station that's in the, uh, you know, that's, that's in like the one hundreds or the high nineties. Right. Uh, and I think that it's, it's one of those things where because of this happy accident where channel six is just so close to the standard FM dial, they can kind of get away with it and they might even be able to, they might even be able to do it without some of the broadcasting overhead that that a regular FM station would have to deal with. Well, not not they're not saved from too much. Like you know, they still have all the content regulations because those yeah. apply to TV as well as they apply to radio. And and certainly some of the reporting uh, requirements are different. In fact, it's probably frankly uh, a bigger pain to <laughs> to run a TV station than it is to run a radio station, except for the fact that this is low power. Uh, so it, it was a TV service designed from the very start to be more accessible and to perhaps uh, kind of improve diversity on the radio. Uh, no, I'm sorry, on television. Um, although in practice, they mostly turned into like home shopping network or QVC affiliates or uh, religious broadcasters. Almost none of them turned into sort of anything that might look like kind of interesting, strange or community oriented local television. So in some ways, uh, these channel sixes have turned into exceptions, not only because of their radio, but because of the fact that they're, they're actually trying to air some interesting programming, even if it's, even if it's just audio. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, and I think that's one of those things where, you know, it's, it's really hard to figure out, you know, how, you know, like it's, it's really hard to, to come up with anything interesting sort of in the world, in the world of, television or radio that hasn't been that hasn't been tried well, you know there i mean like in terms well, of there's just, a lot that commercial radio hasn't tried <laughs> yeah I, I mean i mean yeah that's exactly my point it's, it's sort of like it you know commercial radio is is very is is very limited in in its scope a little bit like there's you know there's a lot of hubris or there's a lot of uh there's a lot of challenges that that kind of come with uh you know, being the market leader or having yeah. or owning a number of radio stations. It's very conservative. I mean, I, you know, exactly. And, and, and these sort of, these sort of stand out. Uh, you know, I, I, when I lived in Chicago, which, which, uh, was, uh, I moved away about three years ago. 
Um, I actually encountered that particular station, though before it was owned by MeTV. At the time, it was Smooth Jazz. And when I heard it on my car radio, because that's where it came in the best, I thought I was listening to a pirate station. Because I, I, I'm, I'm a radio nerd. Uh, I was the advisor to the college station at Northwestern University at that time. So I pretty much knew the dial. I knew every station. And, and I'm hearing a new station. And, and, it, and given its location on the dial, it's, it's a location that a pirate might pick because it would otherwise be fairly free. And, and that's what I thought it was until I got home and started you know, searching. And I said, oh, no, it's, it's Channel 6. It's now, uh, it's now Smooth Jazz. And after that, for a while, it was uh, Sports Talk. It was owned by the Tribune Company, of all things. And then they sold it to Weigel. So it's, yeah. it, it's, an inter- it's a really kind of an interesting history. But I want to talk a little bit about your website, uh, Tedium. How long have you been doing this? How long have you been documenting these sorts of stories? Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, I guess let me start back uh, just a little bit, just a little bit further. Sure. Um, I, um, you know, back in, uh, back in 2009, uh, I had this, uh, you know, I had been laid off from a job and I had this really, you know, I had a little bit of extra time and, you know, like I was sort of waiting on other jobs. So back uh, beginning of 2009, I started this, uh, I started this news blog called, uh, called short form blog. And it was, uh it's basically me just like kind of writing in a very quippy, short way, um, using a lot of quotes, a lot of numbers, uh, a lot of a lot of blurbs, and I did that for about four or five years. Well, uh, almost six actually. Now that I now that I think about it, um, but I, I think that um, it was it was a really good experience. I you know I was I was doing it on Tumblr for a while and. There, I had actually managed to, to to get like a pretty a pretty decent audience. Um, I think uh, I think near the end of it, um, I was around one hundred fifty thousand followers on Tumblr, which wow. is just is just a number I don't even know I don't even know what to do with. So uh, I'm not going to do anything with it. Um, but I kind of I kind of decided at some point like. There's a lot of there's a lot that I like about this, but there's a lot about this is, that's way too much work. Mm-hmm. And um, part of it was that because it was a news blog, I basically had to do it every single day. Right. <laughs> and I um, and I found that it was very, you know, it's very much the kind of thing where it took a lot of time, it took a lot of energy, but ultimately the things that I was creating because they were news related, they ultimately kind of faded away they kind of died out after maybe a day or two so it's like i was putting all this energy into something that essentially was you know essentially had like almost no half-life and uh and as a result i was just like (laughs) i'm totally stressed out about this this feels like this feels like it's not working anymore um so i quit the site and um and then like after that i did I decided, well, what can I learn from this experience and try to take to another platform? As a as a result, like I played with a couple of ideas and searched for some really good domain domain names to see if I any of them like kind of kind of helped spark an idea. And one of the ideas I had was was to write was to write from the angle of finding the most 
boring topics possible <laughs> and trying to make them interesting. And, uh-huh. and it was a very, you know, it was a very like left field kind of idea. I don't think anybody else was actually trying anything like that. Um, and I kind of, I kind of like the idea of like doing a newsletter because, um, the thing about the thing, the thing that kind of bothered me a little bit about, about doing a short form blog on Tumblr was like, I had this apparently vast audience, but ultimately when, when it came down to it at the end of the day, it was, you know, it was an audience that wasn't really, wasn't really mine. I mean, like, you know, Twitter followers aren't really yours. They're just kind of, <laughs> you know. Yeah, they don't necessarily just, engage with you often. They don't necessarily see everything you do. It's sort of, uh, it's more like it just sort of, you're, 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 a, you're a blip on their screen that they may or may not catch as, as it flies past. Yeah, exactly. And so I kind of, you know, and I, and I you know, like, I'm very big on the idea of ownership. I, I think that it's really important to create something that, that you own that yeah. that's all yours. And I thought that, you know, it would be good to like have something that, you know, while it took some work was a little bit easier than trying to write on the news cycle. And also something that was a little like offbeat and left field. And I just kinda I just kinda went for it. Uh so I started uh I started TDM in uh January of uh twenty fifteen. Um about I want to say it was about six years to the day that I started short form blog. And, um, I just kind of started doing it twice a week. Um, you know, as a, as a newsletter, I kind of, I kind of let it grow slowly, you know, tried to focus less on building out a huge audience and more on just like one coming up with creative ideas that like would let people, you know, like look at it and just be like, wow, this is really weird. And to like, you know, just make it about like having fun and about like trying to trying to experiment a little bit with sort of the storytelling style as well as 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 well as the topics I'm going to do. Because if you think about it, you know, a lot of you know in this day and age of web journalism, there's there's so much there's so much out there that has to be tied to whatever Donald Trump is doing at this very moment. And right, you need the news hook. Yeah, and it just—I mean, to me, that eventually felt kind of hollow. And I just wanted to like try something that, like, <laughs> where everything I I, I write about—I mean, I'll occasionally pick up on a trend, but it's in the service of like talking about some weird topic that nobody else is like even thinking about at the moment, like. Um, like this past week, I did a piece on uh, on uh, Pokemon Go, but I did it in in the context of spontaneity, where it was sort of like what this game kind of teaches about like being spontaneous. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah, and and I uh, you know like I try to like bring it bring a lot of theory to it, so it was like maybe if you look at it, it was maybe about. 10 to 15% about the actual game, 85% about like, you know, various things that people have said about spontaneity, various theories that are popular and, and then trying to bring it all back to what I, you know, what I, what I usually write. 
Yeah, your writing style, to me, I mean, you have that element in which it's a little bit like a short thesis, only fun to read, <laughs> right? And, right? And, and now, yes, it seems to me that you're interested in context. You're interested in history. And you're interested in in the countervailing forces that may be involved, right? So it's, you know, when you're following a topic, it seems like you're interested in, in its place in, in the culture at the time, or maybe even presently, and what it says about it. But you do so in a way which is breezy. Um, you know, I, I don't get bogged down in, in what you write, um, it, you know, and, and why I say it's like a thesis, because in some ways it's it, it reads like like a master's thesis, except it's fun. So your research process, I mean, do you, do you, what starts? Do you, do you just sort of get an idea in your head as you're like, oh, po- Pokemon Go, it's so spontaneous. I need to look at that. And then you, do you just go, go about it a research process? Do you, do you, do you ever do interviews or exchange emails with people? Um, I mean, I, I mean, like I've been trying to actually do more interviews lately uh, because I think that, because I think that, you know, one of the things that I've sort of found is that, you know, while I can do a lot of this research on the internet, there are certain things that, like, sometimes the story is just too good for me to, like, uh, for, for me to, like, leave to the possibilities of finding 30-year-old newspaper articles or, you know, or quotes in books or old patents just to tell on its own. Um, I, I actually had an incident with this recently uh, where I, uh, I did a piece about the history of the mouse pad. And while I was like looking this up, which the, you know the history of the mouse pad is kind of amazing to me in a, in a way. It's like it's like the kind of thing where like when I realized that it was actually kind of this like deeper thing than I initially anticipated, like I got kind of excited about it. Which you know like I think that like what happens with these stories is I'll just get like incredibly excited about the topic, even though there's no reason that I should ever be excited about mouse pads. (laughs) (laughs) But now you've told me this and I haven't read this piece, but you've got me excited because, and maybe it's, maybe it's because of my age. I remember first using a mouse and I remember mice that didn't work well. And I remember even Oh, a very long time ago, using a computer with like a big, chunky, multi-button mouse that required a very special mouse pad to work correctly. Like you couldn't just use any old like mouse pad laying around. It had a grid or something on it. I mean, I was very young at the time, but and and you just couldn't go use it like you would now. And and so those little glimmers in the back of my in the back of my head that that make me go, oh, now I really need to read this. <laughs> and you know, like in. And I had a similar feeling, which is that, wow, I really need to write this. <laughs> um, and, and, so, and so, like, I kind of I looked into this story, and I found this guy who, like, was credited in a single New York Times article in 1987 <laughs> at, as the inventor of the mouse pad. It wasn't even, like, it wasn't even, like, in a profile. It was, like, in a list of, in a list of stocking stuffers that you can buy for Christmas. Huh. So I'm just like, is this guy is this guy still around? And what's he doing? And and I I found him. I reached out to him. Um, he he's running an ISP uh, in uh, in Nevada right now. But he started this company in um, in 
in the early early to mid eighties, he he got his hands on a prototype of of the Apple Macintosh uh, back in back in eighty three actually, and he turned and he uh, kind of came to the realization when he was like messing around with it on different surfaces that not every surface is uh, is well attuned to like uh, to a cursor with a to a cursor with a ball at the bottom. Right. So so. Uh, you know, he, he played around with some with some substances, and you know, while arguably there are other claims to the invention of the mouse pad, he kind of came up with the one that most people are familiar with, it, which is like the rubberized, you know, the very porous rubberized surface with the polyester with the polyester lining that has something printed on it. Right. And he, and he. Uh, yeah, you know, he he promoted it in issues of of Macworld and other other magazines of the era, and it just turned out that like of every of every like weird bad idea that like was sold in in copies of Macworld in 1984, his was the one that like became very common in offices around the world. He solved the problem. And someone, and somebody had to do it first, or somebody's had to do it first, and somebody then you know often gets the credit. And and to me, like what you're doing is it's sort of a cultural history, right? I mean, you're looking at something which which has tremendous use and impact in our culture, but which uh, is so mundane that it goes forgotten and taken for granted. But it it has a story, it has a history, and there's real people behind these things and and yeah. do, you, do you have like a background i mean in in history uh or in writing or is this just something that you that, that just you you've decided to develop i mean I, I mean like i i will say that like i've always had kind of an interest in like trying to find like uh you know trying to dive deep i think that like a lot of the skills that i use like um you know are essentially journalism skills like you know, I, I kind of, you know, and I think that a lot, in a lot of ways, what, what I'm doing now, like, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of how I, how I do research is kind of inspired by some of the strategies that I used with, uh, with short form blog, which is that, you know, sometimes the most interesting and fascinating content that you can possibly find and that you can possibly build upon is, is not at the beginning of the story, but it's buried. It's buried deep down, you know, maybe <laughs> maybe thirty inches in. And I think that, and I think that like that kind of inspires my approach a little bit. I mean, like, you know, people, you know, people have asked me in the past, like, you know, like how do you like find story topics? How do you find, uh, you know, you know, how, how do you find different, you know, different story angles and like, you know, like. For, for narrow niche things, like what are your strategies for finding things? And I was just like, <laughs> I mean, when it comes down to it, I'm just really good at Google, you know, like that's, <laughs> you know, I, well, I mean, like, it's more than that because you have to know a good lead from a bad one. You have to know a good source from a bad one. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there, there's a, uh, there's a bit more to it. Give yourself some credit there. I mean, you're good at Google plus you, your nose is well tuned. <laughs> I'll, 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 you know, I, I appreciate the, I appreciate that, uh, <laughs> that you've kind of like contextualized it a little bit, but I think that like, I, you know, I definitely, you know, I definitely want to say that like, you know, my, I think my background 
is less in, you know, that I'm a, a historian or an anthropologist or anything like that. And I think it's more that I'm just like somebody who as a journalist is just interested in, interested in telling good stories. And I think that too, and I think that too often it's really easy. It's, it's really easy to like tell a story, tell a story online these days. Like we have more tools than ever, but, but I think that like what, what happens is that, you know, like one or two stories out of 10 become like this sort of like history, you know, breadth of history that everybody knows about. But, but like the other eight just kind of, just kind of get forgotten about. And, Mm -hmm. and I think that, and, and I think that it's like, you know, with, with the mouse pad or other topics I've kind of touched upon, like, uh, the history, the history of the Band-Aid. Um, I, you know, it's like these things are like there. We use them every single day, but we give them no thought. We don't think about, like, the steps that it took for them to, to come into our homes, the steps that it took for them to basically become, like, you know, basically, basically become like background materials to our, our daily lives. Right. And, and I think that like, as a result, there's a lot of untapped territory to kind of look into. <laughs> sure. And, and, and there's a flip side, I think, to the, the rise of storytelling, uh, you know, because that is certainly an infinite emphasis of our times. There's a certain zeitgeist that, uh, it's that everything should be telling a story. Brands need to tell a story. Everything is a story. And the flip side of that, I think, at least from my own perspective, is but some stories suck. Uh, some stories just aren't good. Some story or, or <laughs> you know, if you've ever heard somebody, you know, at a party trying to telling a story about something that's frankly actually mundane and they're trying to turn it into something that isn't, but they're failing because they haven't found anything about it that is actually unique or interesting. And I've, I've heard this in some podcasts as well that try to sort of jump on the, the storytelling podcast trend and they find a story and they tell it, but it's, it's mundane and, and a mundane story can be great if you can find the point of empathy or find a point of commonality or find like, like it is a story of the bandaid find this element in which it sort of touches everyone's life. But the, the opposite problem, which, which you don't do is people will take something which is mundane and try and sort of inflate it, right? They'll Donald Trump it. It's gotta be huge, you know? So it, it might be this little passing thing, this little anecdote that in and of itself might even be cute and try to turn it into a grand weight. This is some great emblem of our times, or it's it stands in for this for this tremendously large phenomenon. And and they're overreaching, right? The overreaching to 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 tell to take a story and turn it into something big. And I don't get that from you either. That you're 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 very. I mean, you call it tedium.co, which which immediately says that you're not overreaching with 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 that yeah. scope. You know, and it's it's interesting, kind of going back to uh, kind of going back to the mousepad story. Like one of the things that like I did that like I think that not every I, I think that some reporters, you know, some storytellers might might not do like, or they might like kind of underplay it a little bit. Is you know, like the guy said, you know, Bob McDermott, who by the way 
was just a great person to talk to. He was he he was he was hilarious. He was and who's he? Uh, he's the guy who invent, he's the guy who who popularized the mouse pad. Oh, okay. Yeah, and one of the things that I specifically did, you know, I specifically tried not to do in the piece is like, um, I kind of came to it from the perspective of who's the person who invented the mouse pad, and I, I basically I basically said there's a case that this guy may have invented it, but he he himself says that's too strong of a word, and. I didn't run with that story and it was just like, Hey, this is the guy who invented the mouse pad. I I've said like straight up, like that's, you know, like there's a case that could be made, but we're not going to make that case. And I think that like some, you know, like some more clickbaity outlets out there would. <laughs> well, right. Would in, in our clickbait times, the not aspiring to or pushing to it being the most astounding or when I saw it, my jaw dropped or, or whatever to instead actually put things in proportion feels a little, feels a little different <laughs> for these times, even if it, it's an utterly reasonable thing to do. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's just, it's just weird to think about in this era, uh, you know, you know, I, I think that like you got to look at it in terms of what today's media has replaced in some ways, uh, especially especially because uh, I I come from you know I come from newspapers. I spent like eight or nine years working in newspapers, so I got to contextualize it in this way, particularly, which is that sleepy sleepy towns, you know, for decades had these had these newspapers that you know weren't trying to like do it, if it bleeds it leads type headlines they were just trying to tell the stories of their local communities right and now like what we have to replace them are these big or like hundreds if not thousands of national media outlets essentially that can be run from anywhere that can be run from your parents basement and and the only way that they can get attention in a lot of ways is by is by having the best hook, by having the best story, or 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 the hyperbole to 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 try and jit it into the best story. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm getting at. Which is that you know I think that I think that we're in an era where it's it's much you know it's much sexier to have you know to have a story that's a little like puffed up than than one that's you know that just happens to be. That just happens to be what it is. That just happens to be good. Right. The first Chinese restaurant opening up in a small town in Nebraska is news in a small town in Nebraska that might not <laughs> have so many restaurants, right? And that might merit a front page or page two story. Whereas, obviously, in New York City, uh, a Chinese restaurant opening is something that just flies by. It, you know, it would be absurd for it to be on the cover of the New York times or the daily news or any number of papers, uh, in, in New York and in sort of the internet collapses that locality a little bit into the larger kind of sea where, you know, unfortunately it sounds like, you know, to some extent the Des Moines register or, uh, you know, uh, even more local paper, a smaller paper in a smaller city has to, you know, in some ways feels like they're competing with, uh, the wall street journal or the Huffington post. Yeah, and I think that that's that's exactly what's kind of happening. And 
you know, I, I think that at some point when I was, when I was building this and as I've been building this, I've kind of, I've kind of said to myself like, well, that's nice and all, but wouldn't it be better if I, you know, since I, since I know that I'm building this out for myself, you know, when it comes, when it comes down to it, like, it's great to have, it's great to have readers. It's great to have, like, it's great to have an audience for this, but I'm, I'm ultimately doing this because I see this as, as a really good creative exercise. That's something that I can, that can really, you know, that, that I can really build from. And, you know, like I, you know, I guess that like, uh, I, I like to twist the phrase exquisite corpse a little bit, like, to basically, to basically be like, when I die, I hope to have an exquisite course of work. Like to basically, to basically have, to basically say that like, I have a lot of really awesome things that I've built that like, don't seem like they should be congruent together, but looked at as a piece, like, Hey, this guy did some pretty cool stuff. (laughs) And I think that, and I think that that kind of, sort of drives my mentality a little bit. So as a result, I'm not really in the game of <laughs> trying to trying to puff up stories. Right. You know, and corpse and corpus are very close together as words. <laughs> you may behind you may be able to leave behind an exquisite corpus of work, uh, in fact. Um and so this is an independent project, right? You just said this is something you do, you do it essentially for fun as a creative exercise as a, as as a means uh, of expression and yet i um i actually learned about your franken fm article initially because it got picked up by atlas obscura which is a publication organization that is into sort of uh kind of a creative geography if you will um I, their current president is the former editor of slate uh magazine david plotz and uh, how did that come about? How did how did they pick up your uh, story? Well, you know, it's 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 weird because like one of the things that I, I sort of did as as like a strategy to to kind of build you know build out tedium you know like in in sort of like this way where it was kind of like it kind of did it at its own pace um, is that I I basically was just like you know hey you know. Atlas Obscura seems to be doing cool stuff. Seems to be somewhat similar to what I'm already doing. I just sent them an email. I just like said, "Hey, like, <laughs> you, <laughs> you guys seem to be doing cool, doing cool stuff. Here's the cool stuff I'm doing. Like, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And like, you know, like I, as a result, like I, they've been syndicating my pieces for a year. And that's you know, like that." That's been. Oh wow! You know, I didn't realize it was it had gone uh, that was that broad. Yeah, yeah. Like it's you know, like I just basically, you know, like I, I mean, I will say that while I'm doing this for myself, I, you know, I you know, like I, I think that you know, I think that it's it's also it's also helpful to have some strategy. <laughs> sure. do, do they pay you at all, or is this still all just for the for the good of the exposure? Um, I, I would say I would say like. Uh, I, I occasionally do some pieces for them that are, you know, like that are unique to them, um, that, that are, that are paid. Um, I, I do, you know, I, I largely, I largely do it for the exposure. I, the, the reason why I don't mind that necessarily is because one, 
you know, like, ultimately my goal is I'm building out a newsletter. And ultimately the other thing too is that I still do see this as a side project. I still, be, I still see this as like secondary to a full-time job. I do, a daily, I do the daily journalism grind, you know, as a day job. Um, you know, like, you know, I will say this much. I mean, I'm in, I'm in DC right now and DC has a very, you know, it's a very interesting way of uh, mashing different kind of career paths together. So, so like, uh, I'm at a company right now uh, called Manifest that, uh, Combines journalism and marketing in a lot of ways with uh, with his content. So I am I'm like a pure journalist there, but I work for a marketing company, mm-hmm. and it kind of like <laughs> it, it, you know it's like so as a result I've like expanded um, you know I've I've like kind of seen like things from all sides a little bit, yeah. And I and I think that as a result, like I've kind of gained this mindset of strategy is kind of a is kind of an important part of is kind of an important part of the process, and I actually uh, on top of uh, on top of working with uh, Atlas Obscura, um, actually do uh, syndication through a couple of other sites because I apparently know know how to ask things. I guess <laughs> <laughs> so. So so, who else do you? Well, you know, the interesting thing is, folks are always looking for content. It's it if if you're not asking if you're not asking for a check and your writing's good, uh, you greatly up your chances that uh, that someone may take you up on the offer. Yeah, yeah, that's that was kind of my theory, and uh, so I also um, I also syndicate um, with uh, Vice's motherboard site, um, and uh, I also I also uh, throw some pieces to to need a Rama, you know, like they're, and it's like, what, what I find really interesting about this is that like all three places, like while they, while like editorially they have some overlap, like I kind of, I kind of know that like one thing works at one place, one thing works at another and, you know, and so on. Like it's, it's a way, you know, it's, it's sort of like, you know, I, I know that one place will be more receptive to a technology piece than a piece about me writing about a bunch of old movies, you know, for example. Right, right. I got it. And, and you can, and, and it helps you, of course, uh, pick up some additional readers, you hope. So, I mean, given your experience here in sort of building up tedium and, and I mean, you have strategy here that, that you're pursuing. Um, I wonder if you're, if, if there's any advice you give to another independent media maker, whether they're making a podcast or whether they're making a website or something along the lines of, of what you're doing, um, of things that maybe they should think about, like any strategies, something that you learned that, that has really paid off that you, in your mind. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, I think that the important thing that I, you know, like I would, I would definitely say is, you know, kind of, kind of keep at it, like kind of, you know, like, don't, don't like try to, you know, don't try to growth hack your way up to the top as, uh, I'm sure the hip kids of Silicon Valley would put it. Um, I, I think that, I think that it's better to kind of like use, you know, like you, you know, you like the growth of your big thing as, as a bunch of small victories in a lot of ways. Uh-huh. And, yeah. And, and use it as, yeah, you know, and and use that as a way to kind of like build out build out a larger audience. You know, like for you know, like I made 
you know, like I may have a thing that like becomes a, you know, becomes a hit like on one of the sites I syndicate to, or I may have a hit on, on TDM itself. Like I actually had, um, back in, back in January, I, I did this piece where, um, it was sort of, it was sort of cynical. It was sort of like, you know, I, I just sort of had this weird idea because I have weird ideas all the time. I don't know if you've kind of figured this out yet, <laughs> but, um, I was, I was like seeing these ads for, uh, for mattress companies everywhere. Like, uh, you know, like, um, like Casper or, um, I work in podcasting. I know all about them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure that, and I'm sure that me writing about this ensured that I'll never have, I'll, I'll never have a Casper ad on my newsletter, but, um, <laughs> I, uh, I basically, I basically like, I, you know, I basically took the, took the approach of like, hipster mattresses where did they come from and in like what i found was that and what i what i did was i sort of like analyzed the business model a little bit and kind of wondered like how this whole thing came about where we're now we're at the point where these companies like ship these tiny little compressed mattresses and put them on your doorstep you know how how like how how we got to there from, you know, walking into like a giant mass mattress shop where there are like a thousand beds where you can like lay on, and I, uh, and and then the other thing I, I, I kind of wondered about was well if you have a if you have a company you know if you're trying to build a company that like were to compete with Casper how could you do it like what like you know, where could you, uh, purchase a, uh, you know, like a giant, like industrial tool that, that compresses foam mattresses into the size of something that fits in a box. <laughs> and, you know, and of course, uh, of course the answer to that question is, uh, well, as many others in that article is, uh, Alibaba. But, uh, I, <laughs> you know, I think that like, that was really interesting because, I sort of wrote that one to be offbeat and, you know, kind of funny. And it turned out that there were people that like did not look past the fact that I used the phrase hipster mattress and just like, <laughs> I was just like, I'm done. You know, like they're, you know, like that, that like I, I used like such a weird, like slingy term that I invented that like was so divisive that like it like actually kind of, sort of accidentally led to uh, some conversation around it. Like it was for, for a brief period, it was like the top item on hacker news or something like that, which of <laughs> so course folks, you, you, you captured some, some, some essence there that, that either some people it, it hit a little too close to home. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> I, I think that there was a lot of hitting too close to home with that one. Um, but, but that said, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, that was definitely, that was definitely one of those little victories because like, even if there were like 30 people like complaining about like how much they hated that headline, how much they hated that, that I used the word, used the phrase hipster mattress in the title. Like ultimately it drew, it drew a ton of new subscribers to the newsletter. And a lot of those people have stayed on over, you know, over the span of, over the span of six or seven months. So it and sounds like you're focusing on a newsletter is part of your strategy there as well. 
So not yeah. only focusing on people visiting your website, but also people subscribing to your email newsletter. Yeah. I mean, like I kind of, you know, when I, when I started TDM, like I just basically, I put up like a very basic, you know, like sign up for this newsletter page. I'll worry about the website later. Here's, you know, like here's where you got to sign up so you can get my, so you can get my weird rants about whatever I'm going to write about. Like I just like put up that page. People didn't even know, know what I was going to do. I just like said, like I offered like this weird, like, I'm going to look for the end of the long tail and just like I, they, they had enough trust or hope in me that like they actually, <laughs> they actually gave me their email addresses. So <laughs> I, I guess, I, I guess the lesson there is like sometimes that actually works, but uh, <laughs> I, uh, but, but in all seriousness, I mean like I, I built out, I built out the site as, you know, you know, kind of in bits and pieces. I, I, you know, I think I launched it about a year ago, but I, I launched the newsletter uh, in January of uh, 2015, and uh, let it let it kind of go for six months. And like, it kind of it was kind of nice to be able to like focus on the storytelling versus focusing on building the cool website. Which you know, like I kind of you know, like when I did Shortform Blog, the process for me was kind of the op was kind of the opposite. I was just like, I had to build the coolest website I possibly can, spend weeks doing it, like rack my brain, and then just uh and and then just after all that work, hope that the visitors show up. <laughs> right. And, and yeah, and I think that you know and I think that kind of doing things the opposite way like really helped me really helped me as as a writer a little bit because uh it made it so that, you know, when people, you know, I think a lot of times when people talked about, um, you know, short form blog, it was like, you know, they tended to talk about, they, they tended to talk about the design a lot of, the, a lot of the time. And I think that when people talk about uh, tedium, you know, what they tend to talk about is the content, you know, they, they talk about like how, you know, I'm sort of like juggling these, these crazy, these crazy ideas and somehow like turn it into something that's somewhat readable by the end of it. Right. Exactly. Well, so I really appreciate you taking some time to talk with me, Ernie. I'm really looking forward to the next topic that you decide to take on. And do you publish, you publish weekly? How often do you publish? I actually publish twice a week, which is probably, uh, which is probably a little ambitious, but I kind of like ambition. (laughs) (laughs) And, and, you're sticking with it so folks can find your site at uh, tdm.com thanks again for talking with me ernie yeah absolutely thank you so much paul for recording that interview with ernie smith founder of tdm.co and of course you can uh, check out the show notes links uh links to that video that they referenced early on in the conversation uh, of of the guy uh driving to work listening to metv.fm uh, that man by the way is named Bruce David Janu so thank you so much Bruce for that for that uh, YouTube clip and I'm so glad you enjoyed metv.fm there in Chicago subscribe to Radio Survivor on iTunes Stitcher uh, Android apps of your choosing and it really helps if you rate and review us uh, on those websites give us a little extra attention because that's how those 
those platforms know that we exist, that we're not just another blip in the pan. Um, you can always email us at podcast at radiosurvivor.com if you have any feedback. We're on the Facebook and the Twitter as well. Uh, my name is Eric Klein. Thank you so much for, for listening to this episode. See you next week.